This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com sustain. And welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source, whatever that means in the long haul. Today, we have three other panelists besides moi. I'm Richard. Hello. And then we have Justin. Hi, everyone. How are you? <laughs> and we have Eric Berry. Howdy, y'all. And we have Gunner. Hey, friends. And our guest today, very special guest, is Gareth Rushgrove. Hi, everyone. Gareth, you're calling today from Cambridge, correct? Yep. Cool. Can you tell us what you do there? Yes, I work from my house most of the time in Cambridge. I'm a director of product at security software startup called Sneak. That's awesome. So security and open source don't often go together. Are you open source as well as being security? So a lot of what we do is basically provide tools for developers like who use open source software and help them stay secure. So you might have hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of like software packages you're using. There's a vulnerability landscape there. Like some projects are good, some projects are amazing at disclosing vulnerabilities. But how do you keep up with that problem? Like how do you know when the vulnerability is announced in one of your ten thousand like things in your supply chain? And we help with that problem and a bunch of other related like developer problems around security. This problem seems fairly new in the industry, and it's I've been going to GitHub Universe. This is my third year recently. And it was interesting because the floor of GitHub Universe, where the sponsors were, I'd say about a third of them were similar products. At what point do you think the collective community decided that we need to start digging into security holes within our software? Like, where do you think that started? I think it's been one of those bits which is sort of a subset of the open source community is talked about for a long time and like tried to get other people interested. I, th- I think for me, it's two things. One is just the continuing like open source adoption in larger and larger companies and organizations. So I, I back a couple of jobs, worked for the UK government on a bunch of like, I know as a civil servant, I worked for the government, I did a bunch of things related to security services. And security was just, was fundamentally part of like how they approached building and maintaining services. Open source was new to them. And so I think I've been doing open source for a while and like, I guess like 25 years or something in probably in some form or another. It's easy to remember that like, it's rather easy to forget that not everyone is using open source yet, even though it feels like it. But a lot more people are using open source today than 25 years ago. So I think it's just like that partly. I would say the other part is like the collective developer industry is getting by like, like with sort of conferences or social media or podcasts better at talking about the like what we do. It's a super new industry. It's a super new like sort of craft. And like all of these conversations we're having now are just like about improving that craft. And I think security is something that like is sort of riding that zeitgeist. Is security a passion of yours? Did you join the company uh, because that's what you love or is it more along the open source line or maybe both? So I've known 
it's Nick's like four years old. I've known Guy from uh, when he sort of set it up. It's an odd confluence of all the things that I'm interested in. I'm like background as a software developer, still contribute to a lot of open source projects. I'm interested in like organizations that are growing quickly. I'm interested in like open source and commercial open source things around that. I'm interested in developer audiences and have experience there. I'm interested in security and worked in security a little bit as so, like previous roles. And so it was the combination for me of like a lot of things that I liked. So you mentioned Guy, uh, which for those who don't know is Guy Pod, and I, I, I can't pronounce his last name, so that's why. I heard. What is it? Yep, uh, uh, Guy Pajani. Pajani. Uh, yeah, Guy Po or Guy Pod there on the internet generally. Yes, yes. So he was at Akamai. Were you at Akamai with him? Nope. No, oh. we, we've got um, we've got a few uh, folks who are at Akamai. So in my background in like most recently sort of dotted with open source bits and pieces. So I was uh, at Docker for a little while. I was at Puppet for three, four years. Um, on basically on the engineering side in one, product on the other. And before that, I worked for the UK government for, again, like uh, four years or so um, as a technical architect, basically. I, I focused on like infrastructure and operations and security and did all sorts of different weird and wonderful things. Got it. And yeah, just to add more context, so Guy Pod is like, with him and Steve Sauters, they kind of like created the web performance movement. Obviously, there's other key figures in this, but Guy was at Velocity, always speaking about new things. Did he work with uh, Steve Sauters at Yahoo or was it? I, I don't think so. I actually, I, I, I originally met Guy and Steve through Velocity. Um, yeah. So that, Velocity uh, then turned into it merged with another conference. They Velocity originally, for those that had, I didn't get to go as when it was Velocity, was this really interesting mix of uh, basically web performance and performance engineering and basically infrastructure and operations. That sort of predated, like, or was very early in that sort of DevOps sort of movement. Like, sysadmins and infrastructure people were talking about modern operations before that banner arrived. But there were very few events around that really like, were infrastructure engineering uh, bits. There were, there were there were a few of them. Velocity was one of those bits. But it, it was super interesting. She had these combinations of folks. Some people just went to things on performance, but the crossover talks were really interesting. Yeah, then uh, they sort of reorganized them around more specific sort of individual bits. Yeah, if you were in the CDN industry, everyone that was the conference to go to and. I loved going to his talks because obviously he written books about performance and we all at Max CDN, we all had Steve Sauter books and Guy Pod books and we just eat, slept, dreamt web performance. So it's, it's really cool. You get to work with a legend, so to speak. We've got, we've got a bunch of good, good people. So one, one of the things I'm curious about, to bring it back to Sneak for a bit, is you guys have 400,000 users on, on the website, apparently. By the way, it's S-N-Y-K for everyone, anyone listening. Yeah. And you also say that you have three times more vulnerabilities than a public database. Could, could you clarify me on that? So what we do is we aggregate a lot of public data sets. Um, so like CVE, NVD, there's a, a bunch of others um, across like all the different sorts of software ecosystems, so Java or Ruby or Python or whatever. We also do a bunch of like, basically, proprietary security research. 
So we've got security analysts who are play, analyzing projects. And obviously, when we find one of those issues, like we know about it, it's in our database, and if it's our users, so like, and some of those are commercial customers, some of those are, are open source projects, and it's free for open source. But we also basically help projects do like proper disclosure. So one of the most recent ones was in a uncompression library in Java, and uh, what became like this zip slip vulnerability. And actually, it turned out that project was used by loads of other projects. And so we approached the maintainer, who was actually interestingly quite surprised at just how prevalent the thing he'd written was, because it just worked. It was perfect, like it did this one thing. It wasn't something that was in the standard library. And it turns out his API was way better and everyone used it. <laughs> and but there, there was a vulnerability in it. And basically we helped like him do like proper disclosure and like getting a CVE number where we were like we just bridged that gap between often open source in like projects. We talk about projects, but sometimes that's just an individual. Yep. Um, and they probably don't have a security disclosure process and like sort of communication channels into private security things. And so we just help bridge that gap a bit. But yes, in private research, we do a lot of sort of crowdsourcing and sort of data analysis, machine learning type bits. So I'm really curious about, about this, this one example, because this guy had a vulnerability. He had an open source project, which was used everywhere, which you probably didn't expect. And you came in and said, hey, you have a vulnerability, and then you helped him out. Who paid for his time? And who paid for your time for this project? So and fundamentally, that's what we, and part of our value to like our commercial customers, like, so we sell sneakers as a service to a, a whole bunch of customers. Um, one of the things that they really like about us is, I mean, we can make really nice developer tools that developers on work use, but we're also security domain experts. Like I sit somewhere mm. in the middle of that and I, like uh, the other two co-founders, for example, that uh, so guy was one of them, Asaf and Danny. Their domain expertise is like deep security backgrounds. So people in the like, I think uh, you said like, oh, a guy's like famous in the web performance space. Danny's team regularly wins like international level capture the flag security contests. He's really he's, he's the most unassuming person, but like that we've just got that like level of domain knowledge, and we use that to do a lot of security uh, research and combine that with develop tools. And that's like that's sort of unique thing. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, what I love about that is it seems like it's outsourcing the security for individual open source projects that might otherwise have issues. I mean, we all know about Heartbleed that was, you know, the entire web was using it. And there were just two guys in Germany who weren't paid a lot, who were basically yeah. volunteer. Yep. And so yep. if you come in on behalf of commercial interests and help out, then that means that they don't necessarily have to worry about it until it happens. I think like it's a lot of that's about Heartbleed's a good example and a bad example in that earth-shattering vulnerability, it gets a website, it gets a logo, it gets like a, a like it's everyone has heard of that. There's then most vulnerabilities don't get a website and a logo. And they might not be as bad as like something like Challenge Arc or Heartbleed or whatever, but that doesn't mean you don't get compromised based on them. The Equifax um, sort of hack was based on an out-of-date open source dependency. So like, it's a threat vector that companies are getting more, like sort of, they, they see these things happening and want to, and to have a mechanism and process in place. And again, like we, we're sort of an outsourced part of that. But yeah, a, a lot of it, that is as well, like we, 
we want like the whole ecosystem to be more secure. So yes, there's commercial interest, but there's also ultimately, if open source ultimately picks up too much of a, like open source is insecure. Again, like that was like FUD that was used against open source and is still used against open source. Fundamentally, we want the open source ecosystem to be more secure. So some of, like, some of my colleagues, are, I, I hang around a little bit with the SIG security um, on the CNTF, uh, uh, the special interest group, SIGs. Um, one focused on security, a lot of interesting folks doing some stuff there. One of my colleagues is one of the leads for the basically the Node.js security like working group. So we're out there in the community doing a bunch of things as well. Yeah, it's what's interesting about what you just said is, you know, I always compared, well, first of all, Ben and Andrew from libraries.io, they did a, when they owned it, they did yeah. a, yeah, it's like 80% of packages have one or two maintainers. So a lot of people, when they install a package or library or whatever you want to call it, they're installing things that they don't even know they're installing. So, you know, it's kind of like back in 2008 when the uh, U.S. housing crisis collapsed is because they had all these bad loans into this big security. And that's kind of how I always saw it with, and I still see it with open source. I, I see it in a more positive light because I just see progress. But we are, a lot of packages that are used by millions of people can be taken down by this one dependency that is in another dependency. And, you know, tools like Sneak and Fossa and all your other competitors, it's really great and great timing that it came out because this is such a problem where, you know, People who are open source skeptics are always pointing at yes, this. Yeah. You know, they're just like, see, proprietary is the way to go. And it's just, I mean, not as bad as, you know, 10 years ago when Microsoft was really like pushing that and completely changed. But yeah, it's, it's very important if, that if you, we have. If, you, if go you go to the security space, you still ha have that. Like, like, the security space is much more skeptical of open source than I'd, I'd say, like, increasingly the. Of the parts of the industry, I want to see Norton antivirus for Node.js. Yeah, Gareth, I'm actually really glad that we have you on the show. This is a topic that I really haven't given a lot of thought to, and the more that we talked, the more I realized how how much at the core of sustainability the security is. And it makes me wonder, actually, because I've been a Rails developer for twenty, not for twenty years. I've been a Rails developer sure. for about twelve years now. And it seems like there are vulnerability patches all the time. And I don't think that it's, it's definitely not, you know, only Rails or maybe the gems that we're using, but it might be a whole bunch of stuff. Is the choice of using open source actually a big liability for companies solely because those vulnerabilities are made public prior to people patching? If that's the case... How do we solve that? And, and an afterthought tool where, you know, it's watching you, it just seems like that's such a huge hole that does impact uh, business decisions. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's, you know, sorry, I remember some really good conversations with uh, some of the release engineering team at Puppet and who had a, again, like, it was a company as well as the open source project, 
but they had a really thorough process around like vulnerability disclosure. And it, we even re- basically reported vulnerabilities from dependencies, which most people don't do, even though that they would be the things that like most of 80% of that soft, of your application arbitrarily is transitive dependencies, third party code. So the release engineering team at Puppet were, were like really into this topic. And again, like when you have these companies around projects, it's sort of easy. I definitely think as like, how do we get sort of responsible disclosure and like all of these sort of processes and practices into like the developer ecosystem? Just as again, like going right back to like when I started with a bunch of open source stuff, the whole have a readme.md or dot RF or whatever it might be in your re- on your top level repo and actually write a lot of stuff in it. That wasn't the case. Like there was a bunch of code and you could and and the may or may not be a make file and everything else was yeah working out. Apart from like the exceptional projects. Now, and even just that thing you hacked up last night as a sort of an example of something, you probably has a readme. So I mean, how we've done things as a community has evolved based on us. I mean, like, imagine now just if all of the readme's were removed from GitHub for the day, like how less productive we collectively would be. And you, you don't really think about those changes. And I don't know what the, like, and there are, there are a few things around like sort of having a security.md that, that there's not maybe the same adoption or practices or standards and the bits pieces. And I'm not saying the answer is a security.md more finding solutions that scale and then just become the de facto um, is I think a constant challenge for loads of developer sort of like ecosystem things. Security is one of those things. Hey, this is Gunner. I you, you were going in a direction I wanted to ask you about. You know, this is a podcast on sustainability of open source. And I guess there's two ways to ask the question. The open-ended way is, is there a longer list of things you wish open source projects would proactively do to be better members of ecosystems vis-a-vis security? And put more succinctly, are there checklists or places to go for best practices beyond the readme.md? You know, where would you point people for the self-audit that makes them less of an attack surface? So... There's two, there's two parts to that, I think. One is open source sustainability from the point of view of consumers. Um, we want enough consumer confidence that like, if you're a user of an open source project, you, you, you have the information to make the right decisions about vulnerabilities. But I'm an open source maintainer, and I've absolutely burnt myself out a, a couple of times probably on launching projects and ha- having a life and a day job and the demands of having a lot of users use something. And I, I don't think the answer can be, okay, all maintainers, you have to be this this like high, you have to cross this high bar. I think like maybe that ends up with this weird world where I mean, like because you start getting into like, oh do we want a lot less open source software? And um, would would we be happy to sacrifice 90% of open source and 90% of open source growth for that 10% that's left being better at security. Like for me, no. Like from a sustainability point of view, I think open source is, I, that sort of like raising, like, like raising the amount of work you need to do to be involved. I, that, there's a tension there. I do want things to be more secure, I, but I don't think it can be just about demands on maintainers. In terms of good resources, I think it's a 
great question. I'm not aware of a load of like bits like that. Like it's not a dedicated sort of set of uh, resources like that. Again, there's lots of examples. I think that's maybe the point we're at. Um, that's great. Thank you. First off, what do you think the role of GitHub is in this aspect? And also, if you were to give them a report card saying how well their security analysis and, and their tooling that they provide, how much of their solution really solves the problem? I think they're in a, they're in a really interesting place because basically they have all of that source code and they bought uh, Semel recently and they, they were doing some interesting things in the space. And it's always interesting to see what they do. And there's a sort of tension thing there in terms of like, so maybe we compete a little bit and we sort of partner as well. And, and I'm biased. So I think my answer is probably... Well, a biased, of, a biased opinion is usually an educated opinion. So that's, well, that's why true. I asked. Yeah. And I, I think like the, what they've done is a really good validation of ultimately what Sneak was started doing four years ago. And the reality was it, it was a really good idea. And GitHub have started doing that for for a subset of ecosystems. So it's and ultimately we we just have that head start. So we're four years further than that. So we cover more ecosystems, more vulnerabilities. We're a like we are a security company. So I think having something that is just there by default with my like open source hat on actually is really good. Like from a but then I think there's always then space for. No, I need the premium version. I need the the one that's maybe not just about that single platform. Because then you've also got the conversations around, are you only using GitHub? What if you're not using GitHub? Um, again, like, does everything end up then different with different and re repeating the wheel and everything else? So pros and cons. But I think in, in general, like having defaults, you're starting to see like some of the package repositories as well, starting to think about security a lot more. Um, Containers and uh, a sort of container space with like lots of sort of sharing again of third party content, often under like open source licenses. And again, you're seeing the registries implementing security uh, features as well. So I think like that, having something there by default is probably a good, good start. But yeah, there's a load of other things we can do. And again, like I work for a company that happens to uh, do some of those. So I wonder yeah. about. You say there's not a lot of resources out there for security best practices. I just Googled on yeah. DuckDuckGo and like the second hit was like sneak, the sneak blog, which is yep. great for your SEO. Yeah. But I know that GitHub implemented security.md, which now comes up flagged. So like, you know, look at the security thing. Yep. Yeah. I think there's, I, I'm, there might be, but I don't know if there's like a sort of, I, again, that's a convention more than like a sort of what you, what you put in there seems to vary. Um, yeah, more than it being. Ah, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely these things. And I think there are good examples out there from like projects. I think is why I like saying about other things. The so, oh, one thing I mean, like the OWASP as an organization. There's there's a lot of content come out of a lot of the working groups in OWASP. Uh, sometimes it ends. There's I guess there's that classic world where security is a separate thing, and uh, and. In the same way as like design is a separate thing and they go to their separate events and talk in their own sort of echo chambers sometimes. But I think yep. that some of the some of the bits and pieces in OWASP have done a really good job of and the OWASP top ten everyone knows about. There's a load of other good stuff OWASP does, but it's, it maybe is doesn't as visible. So we now run an event called DevSecCon, 
which is actually just trying to bring like developers and security together in one place. Um, it was a conference that we'd participated in. I actually spoke at the first one, I think, in London before, like, so uh, when it was an independent thing. And we actually acquired that recently to help it scale. So we're now doing like, I think, eight around the world this year. And it's not a sneak conference. It is like we're, we're saying, look, as a, as a community, we should talk more about like, application security with the developers and security people in the room. And often it's one or the other. And so I try to have a place where that joint conversation happens. I love that. I think that's awesome. One of the things I'm curious about is when I was thinking about the fact that security people are often other people and thinking about the fact that there's a lot of people out there who have packages that are used by millions of other users. And often they just don't know how many users are using it. Adding a security file or having a security process in place when you're a single individual or a small team is it's kind of an easy step. But then again, doesn't the MIT license and most open source licenses say it's provided as is? So why does security matter except to set expectations for users that, hey, by the way, I'm not going to fix that bug in time? That is yeah, a great I, point. Sorry, I just I, had to say that. No, I think that's the point of uh, open source shouldn't have this arbitrary like barrier to entry. Knowing where the projects stand, I think, is useful. But... And again, there's, there's, there are all sorts of different types of projects. There are projects with literally no maintainers. There are projects with like an individual. There's a pro there are projects where that individual is doing it as part of a, a another job, but they're actually paid to work on it. There are there are like projects with multiple maintainers in all those different sort of spaces. There are companies that are single open source projects. There are projects with multiple companies. There are projects in foundations. There's all this variety. And for lots of different reasons, I think knowing, like you hear a lot of that in that sort of open source program office sort of world, like understanding your supply chain from that perspective. Um, some of that has been, I guess like the start of that was often the sort of license compliance type folks. That happened quickly to a certain degree because uh, the lawyers were involved. And I think the just health of supply chain Bits and uh, maybe a bit more nuanced, and it's so I think it's taking longer for that sort of to percolate through. It, it varies in different ecosystems as well. Um, you see, like again, like some of the language are other bits. I've got like active security working groups, and they're like working on things at that ecosystem level. So I think that's an interesting place as well. I guess a question that occurs to me to ask, and it's just a variation of my resources question, but. I'm somebody who believes that you know reference threat models are useful for people to think through this stuff. In other words, what are potential adversarial situations? What are potential sources of vulnerabilities other than just my code has a hole in it? How do you think about threat models relative to the work you do? In other words, there are many ways to find vulnerabilities in software. Is there any threat modeling that is done or is it more of a pure R&D of just trying to break things or sort of where, what is the role of threat modeling? What do you recommend others do in terms of thinking more and thinking less about a threat model lens on some of this stuff. So yeah, threat modeling is a really like interesting area. Um, I think it's one thing that like for most developers, they don't know what that is. And so again, I think this comes back to education. Um, and ultimately threat modeling is, is trying to like basically stepping back and thinking like an attacker. It's not just about, oh, you will, I have a vulnerability. It's about how may someone want to compromise my application? What are they after? Is it that they're 
trying to steal your cloud credentials to run a bunch of crypto mining things. So like, they're just really in it for money. Is it that they're after your data? Is it that they're after an individual in your project for whatever reason? And also, who are those people? And threat modeling is a huge, interesting topic. One of the things that, like on an open source side, that the CNCF has been doing really well recently with has been basically sponsoring dedicated security folks to come in and do like threat modeling and assessments on a bunch of the high-level CNCF projects. So the Helm project recently, for example. So Helm is one of the CNCF projects. It's a like really popular open source project. It's basically a package manager for Kubernetes. And as part of the Helm 3 release that they did like at the end of last year, they also did basically dedicated security research, identified basically issues in process, issues in coding styles or standards, issues in like how the project worked and did it have like they found some vulnerabilities. And again, like the project went through that process then of like fixing them, disclosing them, and then released the report. So that's all and Security sometimes has those, I think we touched on it earlier, where sometimes you want it to be private to start with. But the CNCF projects are then, like the fact those reports are going on is public. If you jump into the SIG channels, you'll often have conversations about them in a like actually openly accessible but small environment. And then the, the write-up documents are really great examples of just that sort of modeling and thinking about the wider context of a project. And it's not just like, here's some vulnerabilities. So yeah, and again, that I think is one of the things I think like software foundations will probably keep doing more of. And I'm sure it happens in other ones. I just know more about that one. Because um, again, for, for my interview, for projects where it's like, I'm a single maintainer, again, like we can't go, oh yeah, all of those projects should be more secure if you paid a commercial software company to do a full in-depth analysis of it. It's like, how high a, does the barrier to open source get? And open source has no about like none of that. But seeing it for mature projects helps all of us. Because it's, it's a numbers game at the end of the day. It's good that you put that, that you said that because you understand Helm is a CNCF project, which is under the Linux Foundation. It has yeah. Microsoft, Google, Ticketmaster, a bunch of heavyweights behind it. So yeah, I mean, that's compared to the single maintainer. Yeah. Yep. It's that spectrum. But I think one thing about like that, those reports can be used in two ways. One is they're massively beneficial to the project itself. And they're useful signals for like consumers to go, oh, right, they're taking this seriously. The other thing is you can look through it and read it, the output of that about Helm and go, oh, yeah, well, I use that language and I use that pattern and I do that and I do that. And these were things that were discussed. So they're amazing learning resources. Someone might, and coming back to threat modeling as an example, like reading like blog posts or a book on threat modeling is what is like, for some people, that's how they would learn. They would learn in the sort of abstract. For other people, it's like, no, just show me an example. And I think those, again, like over time, I'm be great. I like, they're not just CNCF projects. There'll be other open source projects that have done this sort of thing. I don't know if there's a resource of all of them. And I bet there's loads of just sort of generalizable things you can take out of those reports that are, that are applicable to other projects in like the ecosystem without them all having to go through the same uh, sort of fund the security industry by auditing all of however billion open source projects there are. I, I didn't realize 
what a trickle down effect that actually has. I would never even thought of that. I would just be like, oh, it's about helm and helm only. So it, with that data, does your security team take that in into to account? And obviously not the single source, but scour the internet. Like how big is your security team? What do they do? They're in Tel Aviv, so you know they're like at the creme de la creme. Yeah. So we've got we've got some folks in Tel Aviv, some in London. So we've got a, a bunch of people in a different security roles as well. And we, we build a lot of tooling to help us analyze the data. I think one of the things we did do, actually partly working with the Helm uh, team, was that like, the, the, the audit that was done focused on Helm the software. But Helm is used to install other software. It's a package manager. So we actually set, did some research with our security team on basically those packages. So we, uh, I, again, like with software delivery, like the software, the software that's behind take Linux. If so, if there's a vulnerability in, in like Act, everyone is in trouble. So things like that are the focus. That was Helm. I mean, if there's a problem in Helm, all Helm users are affected. But some of the Helm charts are really popular, like the Redis one or the MySQL one or maybe the Elasticsearch one. Like they're downloaded a lot, and if someone could compromise the thing you bring down, that's still a very large audience. So we did some research looking at like vulnerabilities in Helm charts. So basically the Helm packages and like worked on, like we basically went to the Helm team and said, again, privately to start with, said, look, we've done this research. This isn't us going security foot people like for like XXX buy our tool or XXX open source is bad. It was here's a bunch of things that actually no one's looked at yet. And, we, and we've now looked at, we've done a bit of research, discovered some things. When the Helm team did the right, like they were great. They turned around and said like, wow, this is amazing. How do we, and they basically just kicked off process internally to get better at a bunch of those things. Um, and like we then packaged the tool up and chipped that. And so you, if, you're, if you want to see the vulnerabilities in your Helm charts, you can just use Sneak now. But that all came from as just like, Again, that sort of tech modeling to an extent of saying, well, if I'm going to attack the Helm ecosystem, what are good ways of doing it? And the answers are broadly go after help the Helm project, and that could be the software people and well, the tools that the build tools in. And the Helm security audit looked at that in a lot of detail. And we said, but yeah, the secondary one would be go after the ecosystem of packages. And again, like we, we then you go through that process of like, well, yeah, what might someone do? Is it a big enough problem? Then you go, how do I get some data? And then you go, I found these problems. And one of the things we found was, and again, it's all these supply chain mechanics problems of a Helm chart might use a very out of date image because the Helm the maintainer of the Helm chart wasn't necessarily the maintainer of the container image. And so the container image would get updated to fix some vulnerabilities, but the Helm chart would still have the other one. And just making that visible like, because if it's invisible, you just don't think about it. It's below the line of like you just buying it. If you know it's, if you think about it, you go and you make it visible. It's actually easy to fix those things. This has been awesome. I, I want to ask where do people go to find more information about security? But I feel like if they're at a company, they should talk to Sneak. If it's an open source project, you should also talk to Sneak. Is there anything else you can say to our listeners about like I have a project and I don't know anything about it, and what what can I do to make this more sustainable for me? If people are looking to know more about security, 
fundamentally, I think events are a good place to sort of, to again, like dip your toe into into something. Um, Mm. You are starting to see more people coming to developer events to talk about security. Like you, again, like certainly mob, not many, but you'll see a few. If you're really interested, go find a security event. Like there'll be a software security, an application security event in your like, wherever you are probably like might be small <laughs> go along and be like there's that weird thing of going along to events where you're not an expert in the thing that's there but you're interested and two things happen one is you get a, like a unique superpower of like the things you know probably not the things that everyone else knows and so whereas you might you can talk to like even if there's 10 people there and the nine other people are like security people you can talk to all of them, and they can only talk to you about that thing. So you get this weird sort of learning really quickly effect because everything is new and you go and so I think events are good and security podcasts, there's a, again, like a bunch of them. So we're doing like the secure developer podcast. Uh, it's actually with Guy. So Guy talks to people and some of it's talking to individual developers who not come from a security background. Sometimes it's talking to like security luminaries, like, CISOs of like really large organizations with like interesting things to say. And um, it covers the gamut of like deep technical stuff to the business problems of cybersecurity. Um, I so, yeah, love I think, the idea like, of going to conferences, which you're not <laughs> familiar with, including security conferences. It's really interesting. Uh, and not, not just for security, yeah. just for like any topic. Right. <laughs> I went to one on supercomputers and I learned a ton and I just wasn't related to that at all. For everyone listening, DevSecCon, which is organized by Sneak, is everywhere this year. Singapore, Sydney, Boston, Seattle, London, Tel Aviv, somewhere else. So there will be an event near you. So definitely check that out. Thank you for plugging the podcast as well. That sounds awesome. Where can people go to find you, Gareth? I'm pretty easy to find the internet. Uh, I'm normally Gareth R. I think I've been early enough in a bunch of things. So uh, Twitter is Gareth R, GitHub is Gareth R. uh, uh, My blog is now garethr.dev. So... Gareth R on the internet mainly finds me. Um, awesome. Yeah, there's far, far too many words, far too many. Gareth on says speaker deck. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's far too many slide decks, far too many videos, far too many words, far too many pictures of food. I'm a bit of a foodie. You've got to be careful because someone far, might, far, you know. Far too much code. Like, there's, there's, a, there's an awful the lot of very strange projects in my GitHub. I think you'll find that for most, most developers. It's been super awesome talking. If you don't mind, I want to segue on to Spotlight, where we talk about really cool projects that we're talking about. I am going to have Justin go first. Justin, what do you have for us this week? Well, thank you very much, Richard. Today, I have a blog post by a colleague of mine and friend, uh, Andrew Mason. It's called Ruby on Rails Development with VS Code. As people know, Ruby on Rails is open source, VS Code is open source, and Andrew Mason is just an awesome individual. It's on dev.2. It'll be in the show notes. And uh, yeah. Thank you, Justin. Eric? One of my New Year's resolutions this year, aside from like working out and eating healthy and all that stuff that I'm sure I'll fail within two months, is getting off of Chrome, getting off of Google Chrome. You know, it's, mm. it's interesting. The company that I work with, CodeFund, is so focused on ethical advertising and privacy. And here I am using Chrome. <laughs> so... This year, I've been using Firefox. They've come so far. I'm using the Firefox Developer Edition, which is fantastic for developers. But Firefox has some really awesome built-in tools for privacy and security. 
And I'm always fascinated on how much data they provide back as well. So if you have been on the fence with Firefox in the past, I think now's the time that might be a good time to switch. They are very fast now. The only thing that's noticeable is when you drag one tab out of your great big tab pool and you move it to another one, it's not as smooth of an experience as Chrome. And if that bothers you, then you should probably just stick with Chrome. But other than that, Firefox is a great, great browser. I agree. Switched to Firefox a year ago. Haven't noticed. No complaints since. Gunnar, you got a project for us today? Yeah, I do. Talking about security and talking about supply chains, I just would want to shout out the folks working on the Geeks Linux distribution. That's G-U-I-X, geeks.gnu.org. They're thinking a lot about package management and supply chain and just overall uh, reliability of packages and really about how to bootstrap kernel and OS build so that there is less and less code that you have to trust. And so I'm just a big fan of their passionate work on all of those topics. Awesome. Thank you. I wanted to talk about something that isn't security related. Al Krubadan, C-R-U-B-A-D-A-N.org is a super interesting project that I ran into again this week where minority languages have a lot of issues on the web because there's not enough corpora for them. And so Al Krubadan is a web scraper that scrapes Twitter looking for people who are tweeting in minority languages that aren't spoken by anyone. And it does this using like three character matches. And it now has massive databases for languages that really don't have a lot of speakers, including things like Gaelic or Cree or Navajo. Super cool way to find indigenous tweeters. They do exist. People are tweeting in Navajo right now. And we normally don't see that in our feed because I don't speak it. Do you? So check out Krubadon.org. Super cool. And Gareth, finally, what do you got for us? Given the topic, I'm going to go for uh, Open Policy Agent. It's uh, a few years old, and but like growing a really nice community at this point. So it's actually a, it's basically a policy engine. All those times you've basically like you've sort of written a thing in the middle that makes some decision on some data. It's a generalized sort of tool for that with its own language called Rego that's purely optimized for like writing policy. Um, so you can separate out your policy from like the application code, and you can use Open Policy and basically like a library in a load of other tools. Um, so you're starting to see it's using the uh, the Kubernetes community for validating deployments for security or other reasons. I maintain a tool that basically uses it as a generic testing tool for configuration files. So if you want to write unit tests against like Terraform or Ansible or big long list of other stuff, I mean like JSON, YAML, XML, uh, VCL, someone just had the pull request for. Um, all of that's been based on top of like this open, open policy agent project. And I said the, the maintainers are great, the community is like really nice, like really active, like Slack conversations. Um, so it's really useful. I really like it, but also it's a nice place. Yeah, it's fascinating. Cool. I'd never heard of that. Super cool. Thank you so much. And thank you for being on this podcast. It was a pleasure to have you. Are you going to make it to sustain? Maybe. I'm working Maybe. out all my okay. travel. I, I, like, I'm, I'm working out my travel for the year at the moment, which is uh, proving troublesome. Uh, yeah, That's hopefully. okay. This podcast might actually be released after Sustain has happened, in which case you should check up the notes. If it's not going to release after, then you guys should see if you can come. And looking forward to seeing you around the internet. Uh, thank you so much. And keep sustaining, everyone. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't.
Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain.